Welcome to the Bible for My Ordinary Life podcast. My name is Alicia Parker. I live a pretty ordinary life, and I really enjoy studying and teaching the Bible. I believe the Bible is more than just a collection of interesting stories. It's God's communication to humankind, a revelation about who He is and how we fit into the story He is telling, even if we feel like our personal story is a little bit ordinary. The Bible includes 66 individual books with a unifying theme. God desires a relationship with us. So I'm glad you're here, and I hope by the time we're done, you've learned a little bit more about who God is and the relationship He desires to have with you. Hey everyone, can you believe it's the 30th episode of the Bible for the Ordinary Life? Now, you probably aren't as impressed by this as I am, but I dreamed of this podcast for some time and started it just as the pandemic of 2020 was becoming a real thing in the U.S., I've been producing one episode a week for 30 weeks now, and every single week has been during this crazy pandemic. So much about this year has been unordinary, and even things I'd classify as extraordinary. But I still maintain that in general, my life is fairly ordinary, and I still love to study and teach the Bible. So even though it's been a wild 30 weeks, I'm grateful for the consistent anchor of God's Word in my life. And I hope this podcast is bringing you a little bit of joy in your walk with God, as well as inspiring you to read your Bible. Now, last week, we left off almost at the end of chapter 15 of John's Gospel. Jesus is giving his disciples some farewell instructions just hours before his crucifixion. We stopped a few verses short of chapter 16 because Jesus was about to transition to a section about the Holy Spirit. He'll spend the first few verses of chapter 16 discussing the Holy Spirit's role, so it made sense to end things in verse 24. And to be honest, we left off on a bit of a downer, but I promised you that hopeful news was coming. Jesus has just explained why the world will hate his disciples. He's preparing them for the coming persecution they will face. But in chapter 15, verse 26, he begins a deeper dive into the Holy Spirit's role with the following verses. I'm reading today from the New English Translation. When the Advocate comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you will also testify, because you have been with me from the beginning. I have told you all these things so that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue. Yet a time is coming when the one who kills you will think he is offering a service to God. They will do these things because they have not known the Father or me. But I have told you these things so that when their time comes, you will remember that I told you about them. I did not tell you these things from the beginning because I was with you. So this is not the first time Jesus has taught them about the Holy Spirit or mentioned that he'll be coming soon. Do you remember a few episodes back in the middle of chapter 14 when Jesus promised that he would ask the Father to send them the Spirit? He called him the Spirit of Truth, and then he noted that the world would not see or know the Holy Spirit. Then again, at the end of chapter 14, we saw Jesus mention that the Holy Spirit would be coming and would be teaching them all things and reminding them of all Jesus had told them. Now Jesus 
has elaborated a bit more on the role of the Holy Spirit. Now again, we see in the first verse I just read from the end of chapter 15 that Jesus will be sending the Holy Spirit from the Father, and again, Jesus calls him the Spirit of Truth, both of these things he had said in chapter 14. Jesus also says the Holy Spirit will testify about Jesus. Now, in this section of scripture, we're going to see a lot of wordplay on the idea of a courtroom. I haven't spent very much time in courtrooms or with lawyers, just two experiences, really. One was related to my job in a school district where I was the primary representative for our district in a dispute with a charter school. I was questioned and I was cross-examined. <laughs> I did not enjoy any of those experiences. Another was in a case where we had custody of my niece's stepsister. And again, I was put on the witness stand where I was both questioned and cross-examined. In both cases, the courtroom was a really intimidating experience. I had to give my testimony, and of course, I had a lawyer representing me and another lawyer representing the other party. I learned a lot from both of those experiences. But my biggest takeaway was that I would like to never go back to a court in my entire life. Now, when I read from the New English Translation, the word that's used for the Holy Spirit is advocate. There isn't a perfect English parallel to the Greek word, which is the word parakletos. It means one who comes alongside to comfort or exhort. Some English translations use the word counselor, or comforter, or as we saw here, advocate. Now, counselor is also a term used in a courtroom. It's a term for attorneys. An attorney can come alongside the parties in the court and they counsel them. Sometimes they encourage, sometimes they comfort, and they are definitely advocating for their client. So you can see the imagery developing here of the Holy Spirit's role. And in these verses, Jesus promises that the counselor will come and testify about him. This is where I begin to imagine a courtroom where the Holy Spirit is testifying about Jesus. Perhaps he brings a tremendous opening argument and then he calls his first witness. Guess who that might be? Well, in the next statement, Jesus says, and you will also testify. He's speaking to his disciples here. They will be the first witnesses to Jesus. Why? Well, he says why. Because they've been with him from the beginning. He's getting them ready for this role because a time is coming where they will be judged by fellow Jews and found guilty. They will be thrown out of their synagogue. Don't forget that being thrown out of the synagogue is about the worst thing that can happen to a Jewish man in the first century. The synagogue was the heart of their society and a huge part of their life. It would be an excommunication from all social life, a tremendous dishonor to be thrown out of the synagogue. And what's worse? Jesus predicts that people will kill his disciples because they think they are doing God a favor. But Jesus' disciples have a testimony no one can take from them. They have been with him from the beginning. They have watched his lifestyle and listened to his words. And even when their lives are on the line, they will not be dissuaded that he is the Messiah. So Jesus tells his disciples these things so that when his prophecy comes true, the disciples will remember that he foretold this. 
And he also wants them to keep from stumbling. Basically, what he's saying in these verses is, it's going to get bad, like really bad, guys, but hang in there. I'm sending an advocate. And yes, terrible things will happen, but don't fall away or stumble. Now, if I'd been sitting there, I'm not sure I would have stopped Jesus out of respect for him. But in my mind, I might have been itching to say, wait, 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 wait. Can you go back to the part about where they kill us because they think it's doing God a favor? Because like, is there any way to opt out of that? I mean, there is no anger quite like misplaced religious anger is there. I do not want to be on the opposite side of anyone who is crusading on what they think is God's mission. Yet that is exactly what these Jesus followers were about to face. And Jesus clearly wants them to understand the reality of what is coming, but he also wants them to know he won't leave them alone. So he begins to dive a little deeper into the ministry of the counselor. Picking up on the end of verse 4, he says, I did not tell you these things from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to the one who sent me. And not one of you is asking me, where are you going? Instead, your hearts are filled with sadness because I have said these things to you. But I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I am going away. For if I do not go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will prove the world wrong concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I am going to the Father and you will see me no longer. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been condemned. Now, Jesus reveals here that he hasn't shared all of this with them since he's been with them from the beginning. Over time, he has revealed more and more, but now it's his last few hours with them before his death, and he wants them to know a few key things before he departs. Knowing about the persecution and death that awaits them would not have benefited them three years ago, but now it's critical that they know his ministry has reached its climax and they will be carrying it forward from here on out. Jesus, perfectly wise, shares this information with them when the time is just right. And he asks an interesting question of them. Did you catch it in verse 5 that I read? He says, Now I am going to the one who sent me, and not one of you is asking me, Where are you going? Jesus has been delivering this message to them since way back in chapter 14. There have been two interjections by his disciples during this time. Thomas had said, Lord, we don't know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus had said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then Philip had said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough. And no other comment from the disciples is recorded between those statements and this point. So, we can infer that no one is really speaking up during this, and Jesus is trying to reorientate their thinking. He's omniscient, after all, and that's just a fancy word for all-knowing. So he knows what they're thinking and how they're feeling. 
He's pointing out to them that they are focused on their sorrow in their present moment as they realize he's leaving them. I mean, this is his farewell tour, and they aren't focused at all on where he is going. So stop for a moment and consider this. I know I've said it before, but it's so critical. Jesus is God. He came to earth and lived apart from God the Father and God the Holy Spirit for 30 years. Don't you think he missed being with them? He missed being in their presence. He probably missed not being human. He was headed back to where he came from and he was ready. But the disciples can only see their present moment of sorrow. So Jesus says, None of you are even asking about where I'm going. You're just sad that I'm leaving. They were not in the mindset to be happy for Jesus. And let's not give them too hard of a time. I don't think I would have been any better. I mean, if I had found the Messiah and had walked and lived with him for three years, expecting him to overthrow the Roman rule and establish a new Jerusalem like a warrior king, I'd be pretty bummed to find out he was taking off before any of that happened. I wouldn't have given much thought to where he was going, only that it wasn't what I expected and I wasn't going with him. So as is typical, God's plans are often loftier than ours and often beyond our wildest imaginations. Instead, he's just told these guys to prepare for social excommunication and death. But wait, there's hope. In verse 7, he tells them, they will actually be better off if he leaves and goes away. Now, say what? How is this an advantage, Jesus? <laughs> That's what I'd be thinking. Because if he doesn't leave, then the Holy Spirit, the Parakletos, won't come. And that is the good news. That is the advantage to Jesus leaving. And he lays out three reasons for the role of the Holy Spirit. In verse 8, he gives what a good English teacher would call a topic sentence. And verses 9 through 11 are the supporting details. So let's take each verse one at a time. Verse 8 says, And when he comes, he will prove the world wrong concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So there's our topic sentence. We're going to go back to the idea of a courtroom that I started with. The English translation I read says that the Holy Spirit will prove the world wrong. The Greek word is elengako and can mean convict, refute, rebuke, or reprove. So your translation could use any of those. But I like the idea of convict, and I want to stay with that word for now. If a person is convicted of a crime by a court, it doesn't mean that person admits they're guilty, right? And unfortunately, in our imperfect system, sometimes we convict innocent people. So you could say someone was convicted of something, but they feel no guilt and have no admission of guilt. You can also use this word convict to describe how you feel. I could say I felt convicted that I stole that pack of gum. No, but don't worry, I didn't actually steal any gum. I'm just using that as an example. In this sense, I have an inward feeling of guilt and acknowledgement that what I did was wrong. So Jesus is speaking and referring to the role of the Holy Spirit. And I believe the word here is what the Holy Spirit is doing, not what the world is admitting. He is convicting the world of sin, 
righteousness, and judgment. The world is not admitting that they have a problem with sin, righteousness, and judgment. So with that in mind, let's take a look at the three supporting details. Verse 9, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Okay, those who do not believe in Jesus will be convicted of sin. I mean, it's just that simple. Jesus has repeatedly preached this message throughout John. John 3.16, For God so loved the world, in this way he gave his one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. John 3.18, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe has already been condemned because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. John 6.40 For it is my Father's will that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. John 11.25 Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. So in the heavenly court, where matters of eternal life are decided, those who do not believe in Jesus as God's Son and do not accept his gift of salvation from their sin will be convicted of sin. There's just no way around that truth. Now the second supporting detail of the Holy Spirit's role is in verse 10. It says the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning righteousness because I am going to the Father and you will see me no longer. Now, this verse is a little tricky to decipher because the word translated righteousness here only occurs two times in the New Testament. When a word is used that infrequently, we don't always have a lot of context to fully understand its meaning and the author's intent in using it. So let's try to look at the whole context here. Jesus is laying out the role of the Holy Spirit to convict the world. We have established that it's not the type of conviction we feel as believers when we have done something wrong and our conscience is giving us that nudge. Instead, it's the kind of conviction that occurs in a court of law whether or not the convicted party feels their guilt. So the conviction here is not that the world is being pronounced righteous. That doesn't make any sense. The world isn't righteous. And if you look at the reason, the conviction is coming because Jesus is going to the Father and they will not see him any longer. The world, for these 11 Jewish disciples, is really their Jewish religious community. Those guys are so against Jesus, and those are the guys that will bring about his death. The world isn't very far outside of Jerusalem in 30 AD. So in this discourse, these disciples are thinking about all the persecution Jesus has faced and what they will probably face by the so-called religious leaders of their people. They are the ones wanting to stone Jesus every time he makes a claim to be God. They are the ones who have refused to believe he is the righteous one, and in fact, they will get him crucified because they believe his claim to be God is heresy. So when he rises from the dead and appears to people over the course of 40 days and then ascends to heaven, Jesus will be vindicated. His ascension will prove them wrong and thus convict them concerning their wrong ideas about his righteousness. Okay, so the world will be convicted on two things. So far, their sin because of their unbelief of Jesus, and second, concerning righteousness, because when Jesus ascends, he will prove once and for all that he was 
who he said he was. The third supporting detail is in verse 11, where Jesus said the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning judgment because the ruler of the world has been condemned. Again, remember that the world these guys were dealing with was their religious leadership. And those men prided themselves on passing judgment. Remember how they made up 700 or so extra laws to make sure no one even got close to breaking an actual law? Like you couldn't carry a mat on the Sabbath because it says, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. They were experts in the law and experts in passing judgment for anyone who came with even a half a mile of thinking about breaking the law. But they judged incorrectly. They judged Jesus to be a sinner. They said he had a demon, which was another way to describe mental illness. They tried to stone him. They tried to trick him. And all of this was inspired, not by God, but by the work of Satan, the ruler of the world, the father of lies. On more than one occasion, Jesus told the religious leaders that their father was Satan, not God. He knew their judgment was rooted in sin and lies, not in righteousness and truth. So the third thing the Holy Spirit will do is convict the world concerning judgment because their ruler, Satan, has been condemned. Jesus' final work on the cross will condemn Satan for eternity. We know he's still roaming about and influencing the world, but his time is short and it will come to an end. He was defeated when Jesus provided our substitution on the cross. So by the time the Holy Spirit comes, his conviction of the world on this matter will be settled. So although Jesus is going away and he's leaving his closest followers to deal with persecution by the world and eventually death, the Holy Spirit, this paraclete, is coming. He will convict the world concerning three issues, sin, Jesus' righteousness, and judgment. Jesus says a few more things about the Holy Spirit. So I'm picking back up in verse 12, where he goes on and says, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but will speak whatever he hears and will tell you what is to come. He will glorify me because he will receive from me what is mine and will tell it to you. Everything that the Father has is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what is mine and will tell it to you. Now for real, if I had been sitting there through chapters 14, 15, and now 16, and Jesus just said, I have a lot more to say, but you can't handle it right now, I'd have been like, you bet I can't handle it anymore. Are you kidding me? You're leaving and I'm going to face persecution and death without you and you're sending another, but I haven't met this other and I don't fully understand why he's got to come and you got to go and there's more you have to say. Sometimes Jesus knows our limits and he just says, that's enough for now. But aren't you glad for the Holy Spirit? Isn't Jesus spot on when he says, you can't bear any more now, but the Holy Spirit will guide you? That's exactly what the Holy Spirit does. He then proceeds to help these guys understand that the Holy Spirit won't act on his own. He too is God. He too will only speak what is from God the Father. If you've studied the doctrine of the Trinity, it is so evident here in these verses. Now, 
the word Trinity is never found in scripture, but it's a concept born from understanding that God is one God. Yet there are three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are in complete unity, but they have distinct roles they fill. The Holy Spirit, although evident in the Old Testament, did not play a huge role in the scriptures. So Jesus is trying to communicate and instill confidence in these men that the Holy Spirit, the advocate, the counselor, the comforter, the paraclete is coming. He'll be alongside them, guiding them, teaching them, and everything he will provide will be in unison with God the Father and Jesus himself. This had to have lowered their anxiety some. We read this knowing all the rest of the New Testament and having grown up in a church culture that talks about the Holy Spirit. For these guys, this was totally new. And so Jesus wanted them to be confident that he wasn't leaving them with some lesser substitution of himself. The Holy Spirit, as Jesus said, will receive from me what is mine and will tell it to you. Everything that the Father has is mine. That is why I said, the Spirit will receive from me what is mine and will tell it to you. He's saying, guys, this isn't a substitute teacher. The Spirit is also God. We are one. Have you ever given much thought to the Holy Spirit? In my church tradition, we have focused more on God the Father and God the Son than we have on the Holy Spirit. But as I have gotten older and realized just how important the role of the Holy Spirit is, I have challenged myself to pray specifically to Him, to think about Him, to recognize His voice in my heart and mind. The same Holy Spirit that Jesus sent to guide His disciples is the same Holy Spirit that guides you and me. He is with us to teach us, to guide us, to comfort us, to counsel us, if you are a believer in Jesus, he is your advocate, your paraclete. I hope I never return to a human courtroom. But even if I did, I know I have the Holy Spirit inside of me. He is the ultimate advocate. And although I'm sure it pained his disciples, I bet in hindsight, they were thrilled that Jesus's ascension meant that they received the Holy Spirit. There is no better comforter, counselor, advocate, or paraclete. Thanks so very much for taking the time to listen to today's episode of The Bible for My Ordinary Life. My name is Alicia Parker. I hope you learned something and our time together encouraged your personal relationship with God. Be sure to check out my companion website at www.bibleforteordinarylife.com.